This is A Voice, a podcast with Dr. Gillian Kays and Jeremy Fisher. This is A Voice. Hello and welcome to This A Voice podcast. I'm Jeremy Fisher. And I'm Gillian Kays. We've got a really interesting topic for you today, which is turning points. And we were talking about turning points and all the moments in our lives where we've gone, actually, we're not going to do this, we're going to do that instead. And a lot of turning points... Well, no, a few turning points come from outside influences where you Mm. suddenly find that you can't do what it was that you thought you were going to do. And obviously there's been a big one this year. The global pandemic's been one of those, for sure, Um, yes. You know, there were all sorts of things that we were going to do this year which which didn't Mm. happen. Mostly, I think turning points come from inside. It's a decision that you make inside from information that you suddenly either find or realise or it's just a feeling. Yeah, I think they're signposts as well. And I think we really have to listen to them and pay attention to them and work creatively with them rather than going, oh, my God, I've hit a brick wall here and I'll just keep hitting that brick wall. Yes. So we're going to share some of our our turning points with you. And some are quite dramatic and some are gentle. What, drama? (laughs) In vocal process? No. No, good old no. Okay. Um, All right. Well, look, I'll start. Um, to kind of talk about my journey starting off life as a career singer and making that turning point to becoming a career teacher. Okay, yeah. Uh, Because some people might not know that I was a classical singer. I worked professionally for about 15 years. I was a big fan of uh, leader and art song and also doing professional choral singing. And And this was before I met you. Oh, yeah, long before. Yeah. And, you know, this is this is what I, I wanted to do. I wanted to be a singer, uh, whatever that means, because there are many varieties of that. But, um, yes, how did I move into being a career teacher? Because like many people who started off life as a professional singer, I was doing a bit of teaching on the side. Yes. Without really knowing what I was doing. And I was by no means alone in that. I think that's fairly normal. Yeah. And one of the things that happened to me was that I was asked to teach in a drama school. And suddenly I was presented with groups. Now, that was one of the signposts along my way that I needed to find a new way of thinking about the voice and how to uh, enable people to learn about the singing voice. It was different from what I'd learned in the sort of the one-to-one studio setting. Well, so much classical singing training is one-to-one. Absolutely. And it didn't really... Wasn't that useful? Actually. I didn't know of anybody who was teaching singing in groups other than people in the drama mm. sector. Mm. I could be wrong, but uh, well, although you could say choral leaders were. Mm. So that was definitely a signpost. And then I think what really was my big turning point was I had a voice problem. Yes. And I was 26 years old and I I kind of hit this brick wall, you know, and it was profoundly upsetting at the time as I'm sure anyone listening uh, who's also had a voice problem will will know how that feels it Mm. can be quite devastating and it was in fact just at a point where my career was about to go up a leg Uh, and I just felt that I couldn't perform anymore I didn't I felt that I I couldn't rely on my voice and my voice had become unreliable and that's really terrifying yeah And I couldn't really find anyone who could tell me what was going on there. Mm. And fortunately, my career, which was emerging as a teacher then, 
really helped me at that point in time. So I began to focus more on the teaching. It was through the teaching that I learned to heal my own voice. Mm. And that's often the way, isn't it? We often say on our courses to teachers to learn twice. And I really did grab that opportunity. The other aspect of that turning point was I became very interested in clinical voice and about the mechanism of the voice. So that was the time in which I joined the British Voice Association. Mm -hmm. And I've been a member of that for over 30 years and kind of hanging out with clinicians. I mean, you know what I say. I think that I learned more about the singing voice from clinicians than ever I learned from a singing teacher. Very sorry, singing teachers, but that's how it was <laughs> when I was in and my early twenties. Still is, and that kind of set me off on that first turning point. Yeah. Do you want to talk about your first turning point? Yeah, um, I have to go right back. Uh, in fact, I've got a, a couple. When I went to a music college, I was actually sixteen when I auditioned. I was a precocious so and so, um, and I auditioned as a first study oboist. So I was playing oboe at the time and I wanted to do joint first oboe and piano because I played them both to the same level. And so I went to the Royal Northern, um, got in one of only three oboists uh, at the time. And it was one of those I had to get, um, bless Shropshire, which is where I'm from, but I had to get out because uh, there wasn't that much music making going on at the time. So that was a little turning point, yeah, wasn't it? Was it was a certainly big was. deal, actually, certainly to go was. from a small... A huge deal. A very small town. Very, it's a village, very Manchester. small village that yeah. I, I grew up in. And um, went to Manchester and uh, did two years first study oboe. Um, was, in fact, the only oboist in my year to pass my exam. And um, then decided I had one of my front teeth out at the bottom. Um, and I actually couldn't play for a couple of months uh, while they were sort of healing up. And I thought, oh, I'm loving this. Um, it's so stressful playing the oboe. And I still love the sound of it. And I still work with professional oboists uh, as an accompanist. But I thought, no, I know this is not for me. I'm going to ask if I can change to piano. Isn't that interesting? So that's sort of, I mean, it's not quite an external change because obviously you had something happen with your teeth. Yeah. And I had something happen with my voice. But... Um, it was still something that was that we were presented with. It was, it was that interesting. It caused us to change our minds. It was a discovery, mm. certainly, that mm. I went, oh, okay, oh, well, this is not much fun. Um, I'm having, actually having more fun not playing. And by that time, I was already playing but the piano for all the other oboists and bassoonists and clarinetists, and I knew, and flautists. So I knew all the, the, I knew lots and lots of the woodwind repertoire. And so I asked if I could change to the accompaniment course. There was a specialist accompaniment course at the Royal Northern. And they said, no, you can't. You've got to do first study piano for a year and then we'll we'll allow you to change. So that was quite something. And I went back a year. And this was in the day where everything was funded. So I had a full grant because my parents were not well off. Mm. And the whole grant just stopped. And so I had to self-finance for a year. And that was fun. Uh, not. Um, I ended up doing front of house in the college theatre every night for almost a year. Uh, with my sash and my ice cream tray. Yes, I know all about that. Um, and so I then did the first study uh, piano and I still was determined to do the accompaniment course because I loved the idea mm. and I loved working with people and I loved... I actually, what I really liked was I could learn things very fast. I was a very good sight reader, but I loved the idea that somebody else would come along and bring their 
ideas about a piece. And their energy. Their energy, their mm. input, their ideas, their take mm. on that piece of music. Mm. And then I would make it work, basically. And I still do that. That I will, I'm very happy, you know, playing the same piece for 20 different people. They have mm. 20 different versions of it. And it's up to me to make their version and my version work together. Mm. And I think that's when you have a really good rapport with somebody that you're working with, is when you make something together that is bigger and or more or stronger than if you do it separately. I think that it's it's such a clear marker that you were a collaborative beast. Yes. And that uh, granted that when you're playing in an orchestra, so for example, if you're playing, you know, first or second or third oboe in an orchestra, mm. you are working with a group, but there isn't that sense of collaboration that I think you get in ensemble playing or in, in duo playing. Yeah. Do you agree? Yes, yes, mm. actually I would. Mm. Um, and it is it is very interesting. The other thing which is fascinating for me is that, I mean, and I know you wrote a note about this, which is dead ends. Yes. And dead ends <laughs> occur quite a lot in my life where I got to a point with the oboe where I was going, I can play all of these studies, I can play all of these pieces, you know, I can play concertos. I actually did concertos mm. on the oboe. And I thought, do you know, it's almost like the instrument itself isn't big enough for me. It's That feels like a little bit of a dead end. Do you think you realised, and um, obviously I didn't know you at that time, and mm. I've heard some of the recordings of you playing, do you think that you realised that maybe you weren't going to be a premier, you know, um, orchestra oboe player and you thought, well, now I'm going to pivot? Or no, no. It wasn't. Of course I was going to be. Of course I was going to be a premier oboe player. Of course I was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I was going to be a prima donna. <laughs> um, no, it was actually that I thought uh, it. Uh, I'm I'm putting the wording into my own mouth now, which was there's more to life than this. Yes. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, I didn't actually word it quite like that yeah. in my own mind even then, but there, it was there was more to life mm. than this, and I felt that with the piano, I had more to do. I had more to express. I had more to play with, actually. Um, mm. And also very specifically that I wanted to be an accompanist. And that was very mm. clear. I pretty much fought the p- solo piano teacher that I was with because she wanted me to stay on the solo piano course. Mm. And I was like, I can't imagine myself being in a room by myself at the piano for seven hours a day. Do you think you're, being a collaborative pianist was seen then as second best? It sort of was, mm, yes. Interesting. And the thing is that I'm a collaborative pianist by training and by nature. Mm. Uh, I love working with other people and I love the sort of the duo or the trio or the small ensemble work. You know, I've done uh, piano sextets and stuff like that. I don't think I would go much bigger than a sextet um, simply because I'm, I love working with personalities and personas and the energy that people bring. Mm, interesting. Okay, um, so British Voice Association, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the Estill turning point for me. Yes. And where you came in on that. Where I came in, yes. Uh, so yes, it was all my fault. Yeah. <laughs> no, it wasn't. In the early 1990s, the British Voice Association introduced Joe Estill to the UK. And because I was in that um, sort of post-voice problem phase where I hadn't really come up with the answers that I wanted... It, and because I was linked with the BVA as a member, a very keen member, um, it was very interesting to me to come across um, a singing voice trainer who talked about what was going on inside the larynx. And, and you know, to be fair, I think Joe Estill was one of the first people to go out on the road and do that, and who was uh, certainly in the UK. 
and that was very attractive. Uh, and I found a, a, a lot of answers there. Uh, and it, as it happens, en route to that, when Jeremy had another one of his turning points, which I want you to talk about in a minute, um, that was how we met. And I then went kind of all the way as as an Estill trainer, because when I find something that um, I want to be involved with, then I will really go with it. So that was a that was a kind of still along the the um, the outcome of having had a voice problem. And then what happened was a turning point away from Estill for me. And this is very interesting because what I found was that I had um, students in my studio reporting uh, what I describe as range-specific events and sensations that didn't fit with the model of voice quality that I'd learned and um, was working with. And this kept on happening, especially with the female singers, that there was it was clear that there was a range-specific event and it kind of niggled at me because it wasn't fitting the model. And that was one of the things that caused me to look outside it and eventually took me to do my own research. Because, of course, that was to do with register mechanisms, mm-hmm. which we might mention as we go along the next <laughs> part of the way. Yes. Do you want to, have we talked before about how we met? And Because you hit a brick wall, didn't you? And that's how we met. I, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, which particular brick wall was this one? Uh, the snapped tendon. Oh, Gosh, yes. Okay, we have to jump forward quite a long way. Mm. Um, After I left college, I was out of work for six months. Nobody would employ me. Um, So I uh, actually moved specifically to Leeds and I rang um, Opera North and uh, said, you know, I want to come and work for you as an opera repetitor. And in fact, I ended up doing, um, uh, recommended by them, I ended up, my first job was Carmen Jones at the Crucible. Uh, which was the European premiere, I think, of Carmen Jones, where I was playing piano for that. And then I started working with um, Opera North, and then I went into opera repetitoring quite seriously. Mm. I was headhunted uh, by Scottish Opera to go up and do work with them. I learned, had to learn Lulu in two days, I think, for them, which was quite something. Um, and so, I, And then I moved down to London... And I started working in musicals. So I was sort of one foot in the opera world and one foot in the musicals world. I want you to tell us how it was that you came to switch from classical (laughs) to musical theatre, because that one is a really interesting one. My worst audition experience ever. Um, I'd already done uh, courses. I played as I was an official accompanist on opera courses. I was working with Thomas Hampson, Brigitte Fassbender, Renata Scotto. Uh, There were all these people, very, very high level opera singers, which I was playing for. And um, it was actually Vic Morris at the time who was the head of the uh, repetitor organisation thing at ENO in London at the Coliseum. And he said, please come and audition for us um, as a repetiteur. So I went and did my audition and they put something in front of me, which was, which I'd never seen before. And it was the sextet from Cosi Fantuti. I think it's the end of Act Two. And they said, can you please play and sing that? Now, bearing in mind, I hadn't seen it. I hadn't heard it. I didn't know it at all. So I was sight reading six lines of vocals with the lyrics and two lines of piano part. So I'm sight reading eight lines at a time. And this thing goes like the clappers. 
So I was, so basically I switched my overdrive on, which I am able to do occasionally, and I went for it. And I ended up basically singing lines, I remember this, singing the lyrics um, of what, whichever line I just went with, and literally never looking once at the at the piano part. I was just extrapolating the piano part from all the choral bits that mm. I, I don't think I've ever, ever told you that. No, you have. All right. Mm. Um, so I was extrapolating the piano part. And at the end of it, they said, were you, were you genuinely sight reading that? And I said, yes. And they said, great. Okay, so come and sit down and have a chat with us. And so me being, I was, that was quite hyped. And uh, they said, so... Um, why do you want to become an opera repetitor at ENO? And I said, I don't. I want to work in musicals. <laughs> Which was, that was the end of that audition. <laughs> but that, that's the inner voice thing, isn't it? That is when your mouth opens and words come out and you didn't realise that they were there. Mm. That mm. was so embarrassing looking back on it. But it took me into musicals. Yeah. So yeah. I started working in the West End. And. Well, I mean, I've got one that is very similar. Um, and, and I just want to say that there's kind of no side in expressing this at all. But um, th- there was a point sort of after having moved away from um, being an Estill trainer where um, somebody asked me, well, um, wouldn't you like to teach the model again? And Jeremy was with me. Yeah. Out of my mouth came the words, no, I don't think so. I've done that. Yeah. And even I couldn't believe that this voice came out saying that. It wasn't anything that I'd articulated before in that way. And I realised that the inner voice was saying, been there, done that, got the T-shirt, dead end. Yeah. And that what I needed to do at that point was to move on. And it was that, you know, it took me another couple of years to decide that I was going to do a PhD, which, mm. in fact, a colleague of mine suggested to me and she said, look, go off, do your own research. You've got you've really got something to say here. Mm. Uh, and that was obviously a big turning point that took quite a long time to get to the end of that road. It was a bit like a juggernaut reversing. Yeah. And actually, at the beginning of my PhD, um, just back referring to students reporting range specific um events and sensations that didn't fit into the model I'd learned, uh, I spent a li- quite a little bit of time digging around for that hole in the middle, you know, the middle register, the mythical middle register. You wouldn't believe how much research there is on it, research that always concludes it doesn't exist. And for those of you so. who don't know, don't know about the middle register, mm. um, we're talking um, creek, modal, falsetto, whistle, but then apparently in women, and particularly in classical women, there is a middle register, which is basically sort of E above middle C to the C or D. It's D, D4, D4 to E5. Yeah. So I mean, the, I was definitely trained in use of middle register yes, in my yes. classical singing. And the theory is that, that women have a, com- a completely separate middle register mm. that men don't have. If, if you uh, look at some historical records and you look at what happened to uh, Garcia, who was the first person to use autolaryngoscopy and who spotted that... Um, what hang, on, we now... let me, hang on, let me just explain autolaryngoscopy. Oh, he, yes, he do. He put a mirror I'm in his that mouth. I'm pleased that I managed to say it. Yeah, well done. He put a mirror in, the, in his mouth so he could actually see the back of his vocal folds. That's autolaryngoscopy. Yeah, and he bounced the sunlight off the mirror, didn't he, or something? Into another mirror. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And he was the first person, as far as I'm aware, who spotted that uh, what we now call um, mechanism one and mechanism two or chest mechanism. And um, 
head or falsetto mechanism, or, or, head falsetto, he ended up calling it, falsetto head, I think, um, that, that those patterns of vibration looked different. Even then, without any high-speed stuff, he could see that it was different. Yeah. Um, what happened then, kind of historically, you know, once he presented all of this and it was put out into the pedagogical world, was that there was uproar from the singing teachers. Yeah. There is a middle register that women use. So that's why, in the end, he talked about um, falsetto set her head mm. isn't that fascinating mm-hmm. anyway so um, and can I just say that our take on that is that there isn't a middle register that is different in women that mm. it is usage um, and that you can do a middle register based on a modal vibration or on a falsetto vibration and people do different things and call it the same thing. And mostly in um, CCM singing and in musical theatre singing, again in female voice, if we're looking in that middle region, it's often called a mix. And just as Jeremy said, that, that mix, which is really to do with a, a recipe of what you're doing with the acoustics, mm. uh, is based either on a me- mechanism one or a mechanism two. And I will say that the understanding of and, and the development of, you know, kind of sensory feedback of those mechanisms is very much at the core of our teaching and at the core of the way that we work with teachers who come to us to train. Mm. Mm. Um, one of the things, I mean, I was just thinking, listening when you were talking, and I was thinking, well, maybe we should, rather than calling this turning points, we should call this dead ends. Because we've actually said several dead ends so far that have made us go, no, we don't want to do but that. But th- they, they were good dead ends. And um, just going back to my story, um, I decided pretty much after that interview that really opera repetiteuring only led to opera conducting. It didn't lead to much else. Mm. And I didn't want to do opera conducting. So to me, that was a dead end. And really, that was the decision that I mm. went, right, mm. I'm going to go into musicals and see what that does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Oh, and you said... Um, you mentioned my tendon. Yes. Ten minutes ago. Let me just say what happened with my tendon. Um, I was actually really interesting. I read my diary from that period mm-hmm. and I was so busy. I was working on about three or four different shows. I was doing private sessions. I was doing coaching sessions. I was doing audition pianist. I was doing all sorts of you things. You were about to go on tour Again, yep. with Carmen Jones. He was on my radar then. Yep. I'd heard him speak on the phone. <laughs> I do love a bass. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I'm not sure we'd met. I don't think I we don't, had met. No, I don't think we had. No. No. I think the, the, the first time you we met, you tried to throw me out. That's right. And we, we I think we talked about we it probably, probably in podcast one. So that, we, won't, yeah. we won't go over it again. We think that's in podcast one. Mm. Yes. Um, I had an accident with my hand mm. and I snapped a tendon in my finger and it became what's called a mallet finger, mm. where the top joint of the middle finger bends over at right angles and just stays there do you want to show people i do i do not want to show people no absolutely not no um it's horrible he's not going to show you um and the thing is that when it happened first of all i didn't know what it was um Mm. and i was actually taking my trousers off at the time so it was a freak i wasn't present no nobody was present it was me by myself freak accident and um I didn't know what it was, I didn't know what had happened, but I know it was a shock. Mm. And I remember that was another of those extraordinary turning points where I just looked at this thing and I went, well, that's the end of my pianistic career. Mm. That's it. Mm -hmm. I won't be able to play the piano again. Because if it heals, I won't be able to play the piano as well as I used to. And if I can't do that, I'm not going to do it at all. And so it was at that point that I went, right, I'm going to get a life. 
Because I hadn't really had a life up to then. I'd done lots of work. And he met me. Yeah. That was part of the life. <laughs> so sometimes dead ends are good. In yes. Fact. Yeah. yeah. I mean, as it happens, my finger, it was 10 weeks, my finger was in a splint. Yeah. And it came out and it was healed. Mm. It took a, another couple of months to get back to piano playing and I was playing as well as ever. As it then happened, it happened again. This time it was the socks. Different finger. I was taking my socks off. <laughs> Clearly there is something for me about undressing. Um, and again, it was another 10 weeks before that one healed. Mm. And that has now healed and I am playing and as well as still... ever. Do you think, I mean, this is interesting, but do you think that um, revisiting your technique enabled you to play better and gave you a greater insight into it because I, I know it did for me having to rebuild my boy, voice is one of the things that has made me the teacher that I am um this is going to be an odd answer because I'm going to say no mm. um what did enable me to rework what I did was the gap where it was actually 10 weeks of not playing 10 weeks of not doing music at all in any way um, and then I came back to it and I could see it in a slightly different way. Mm. And that happened both times. Mm. So the, the, in a way, the getting my, my finger movement and speed and dexterity back was just a job in a way. Mm. It was actually the gap that gave me a very different insight into how music works. Do you know, I think that's true because obviously I, I was there when it happened the mm. second time. And um, I remember the first concert that you were preparing for, uh, which was the songs um oh, songs with the oboe songs with the oboe yes. yeah and uh, jeremy was playing playing for that 20 23 songs yeah something like yeah. that and i think that your playing became Im more emotional after you had that second incident well yes because i'd experienced played I at I'd, a deeper level i'd experienced life for the first time mm. it was actually interestingly i remember going back to when i was 15 and I was doing O-level music and people, I was playing some Debussy and, and one of my um, student friends said, um, well, you play, you know, technically very well, but, you know, you don't play with any heart. And I thought, oh, that's such a shame. So clearly it took me about 30 years to get that going. Isn't it extraordinary how musicians are critical of each other? I mean, Ooh. when we were thinking about what we were going to chat about today, we yeah. talked about this. And I've come across other classical singers who've who've said this. And first of all, I, I want to um, do a disclaimer, which is I, I think that much classical singing teaching is different now. But when I was training, it was either wrong or it was wrong. Mm -hmm. And if it got better, it was still a little bit wrong. Mm -hmm. In other words... It was very hard for you get to, for you to get to the point where you felt you were good enough. Mm. And that was hard. That was very hard for I me. I think it's so interesting because I think one of the big things that we do now is linked to context. Mm. So whatever you're doing, whatever you're required to do as a singer, whatever you're required to do as a musician, there's a context in which you do it. Mm. And I think what's so fascinating about classical singing lessons, particularly when I was around, because I played for thousands of them, um, is that the context was never really made very specific. It was always about your voice must be this, your voice must do this, but not necessarily, you know, it was 35 minutes of exercises and then maybe you'd sing a bit of an aria afterwards. And I always thought, why doesn't, why don't the exercises link to the aria? As in, why don't you know which aria you're going to sing when you first start the lesson and gear all of your exercises to that? Mm. And also... Mm. 
Why aren't you gearing the lesson to the context in which you're going to be singing that aria? So if you're in a recording studio, it will be one thing. If you're on a 3,000-seater stage, it will be another thing. If you're on a 500-seater stage, it will be another thing. Mm. Um, if you're doing a recital version where you just drop an aria in, it will be a different thing. If you're doing the full opera or major excerpts from it, there's a different context. Mm. And it always struck me as odd that context was never taken into account. It was always about your voice must reach this standard. Yeah, it had to be sort of trained to a certain level. And I think the idea was once your voice reached this standard, which would take you 30 years or so, then you could sing anything. And I'm going, well, that's great, but what a waste of time. Uh, it's also not, doesn't represent reality. No, it doesn't. So and then, then you move into theatre, and with theatre you're doing eight shows a week and two rehearsals. And um, your task is very different. I and mean, partly it's... And again, it's much more a collaborative it's, thing. It's, partly it's a collaborative thing, partly it's a stamina issue, mm. um, and it's also a repeatable issue, because you never repeat opera roles that much. You know, people are very proud that they've done this opera role 50 times. Mm. And I'm going, my very first job in musical theatre was 126 performances. I'd never done 126 of anything. So it's a very different mentality mm. to start mm. with. And then also you've got the drama um, and also the the sort of the co-creating with the rest of the cast thing, which I think is different in musicals than it is in opera. Mm. I mean, that was a very big thing for me when I first went to work in, in drama schools, the whole group class thing mm. in both um, spoken voice and sung voice. And uh, yes, there were certain, you know, training targets that people needed to meet. And certainly in spoken voice, uh, there were tonal qualities and sound qualities and um, clarity of articulation that, that were required. But it was much more of a group learning experience. And I found that very freeing. There was much more exploration mm. rather than you had to learn to do it right. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, maybe we're being unfair, but that, you oh, know, I, don't think I, so. <laughs> I think there was something there. Should we just talk a little bit about, did we actually make a decision to run a company or was it something that just I think we did. Happened. No, yeah. I, think, I think we did because mm. I remember you came up with the name. Right, uh, you came up process. With the process yeah. in, in just before in two thousand. Yeah, because we incorporated in nineteen ninety nine, yeah. and then we changed the name to Vocal Process in two thousand April. April, yeah, something, and that was the time. That was about the time that I was. Um, my first book was published, yes. Singing in the Actor. Singing in the Actor. And actually, what was oh, there's a ping there. <laughs> um, what was so important about that was the word process, and I realise, you know, that maybe the word process is a bit conceptual. It's not kind of, it's not sexy like a method name because we we don't teach a method. We've always been really solid on that um, since two thousand and one. We we don't. We don't teach a method I mean, because methods tend to be a bit boxed in and a bit closed. Well, method, I think, are tick boxes, um, which is yeah. here are the exercises that you do, here are the sounds that you need to make, off you go and do them. Um, I think people, I mean, first of all, they have their value because I think they've evolved to meet the needs of certain communities. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because certainly when I was growing up, the only approach to singing learning was classical it was that was the only one that was the only learning model and as mm. people wanted to learn to train in other genres this is when some of these um new methods came about so mm. they came about for good reasons i think one of the um 
reasons why people are attracted to methods is they want certainty. Mm. You know, right, if I do this and I do, do all these tick boxes and I, I do everything here, yep. then I will be sure of myself and what I'm doing. And really, they're only a starting point. And they I guess that's what I point. found. It was a starting point And that, that's why I moved on. Yes, I'm totally with you on that. Yeah. Um, and really, vocal process is a, is a vehicle for our creative output in all things to do with voice and understanding of voice and, and training of teachers. Well, it's which, not, it's not yeah. only that, though. I mean, what you've got to remember is that because there are two of us and because we have similar knowledge, but we come from very different backgrounds. Mm. So vocal process doesn't just cover vocal technique. Mm. It's actually context. It's performance issues. Mm. It's, there's all sorts of stage craft. There's all yeah. sorts of things that we both cover. And I think it's important that because there was always a, um, I mean, for ages I was going, I'm not quite sure where my skills fit in with vocal process. Mm. And mm. Um, it was why we wrote successful singing auditions in 2002 together, because it was one of my biggest areas of skill where I go, mm. look, I know how singing auditions work. I have done so many of mm. them. I've coached so many people to be successful in them. All we need to do is get the information out. And, you know, Really, that's what vocal process has done, because underlying pretty much everything we've done is all we need to do is get the information out. Mm. And we have always been from the very beginning, pretty much from when we met, it's always been we have some amazing information. We have some amazing techniques that we've learned, that we understand, that we do. Mm -hmm. And it's been very much about how can we get this out to other people? How can we go public on this? How do we get it out in a format that people do? How can we share it? People can use it and use it for themselves and then pass that on. Do you know, somebody said something so wonderful to me the other day. Um, I won't say who, because I haven't asked permission to use what they said, but Mm -hmm. I think it was along the lines of the work that you do, it's like the um, the pebble in the pond and that it spreads out and out and out via all of us singing teachers. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you, that was one of the most um, precious moments of feedback mm. that I've ever received. And I, I felt then, you know, that somebody was really getting what what we're doing and because we want to affect that change and, and my feeling certainly now at this point in my um career as a career teacher is I can make the most difference by working with other teachers mm. I can reach more people that way I think also because I'm I'm so interested in different formats um, it almost doesn't matter what the format is I'll do mm. something with it mm. so when we first started we were doing courses um, then we did DVDs, then we did uh, online downloads, we've done books, we've done leaflets, we've done webinars, blogs, blogs. Oh. we've done um, another podcast. So as far as I'm concerned, whatever the format is, let's use it. Mm. And so that people have a choice about how they get information from us. Mm. And some of it's free and some of it's paid because mm. um, we have to live. And I will say, you know, a wonderful thing about uh, my husband is that uh, present him with a new format, something he's never done before, you know, he's never made a video, hasn't trained as a videographer. And, oh, I'm going to do videos of the voice. And so we had our endoscopic footage. (laughs) And and then he turns around and creates a video. You've missed missed the bit in the middle, which is the lot of swearing. Yeah, but a lot. you turned around and did that. So you are very good at 
thinking out of the box much better than I am, actually. It, it all The whole thing that drives it is how can we get this information yeah. out? Yeah. How can we share? So let's go back to where we started, which is... Oh, I want to talk about turning points. Yeah. Because before we go to there, mm. I want to talk about turning points because often um, with an external turning point... It is a barrier. It's a brick wall. It's mm. a block. It's an accident. Mm. It's a, a dead end. It's a dead end. It's mm. a, a traumatic event mm. as well. Mm-hmm. And what I want to say, and I'm really starting to understand this on a much deeper level now, is when you have a traumatic event like that, mm. embedded in that traumatic event is something amazing. Because it mm. can be an impetus to get you out of what you're doing Mm. into something new. It can be a really obvious sign to you that what you're doing isn't working. Mm. Or it can be if I mean, let's say, I mean, you know, I was I was very successful as a as an audition pianist and rehearsal pianist. Mm. But it was something that made me when I couldn't play anymore, it made me rethink what I was doing. And I sort of want to highlight that which is somewhere in any trauma that you that exists for you, there is something that is very positive. And actually, mm-hmm. if you can find it, if you can work it, if you can look for it, it's going to be there. And that's not uttered as some trite truism. Because, <laughs> that's experience. You know, uh, aside from the fact that we're all, you know, faced with the pandemic at the moment, um, each of us has has had those moments. Mm. So which, again, we talked about before. So so bringing us up to date. Yeah, bringing us up to date. Obviously, the global pandemic um, caused many of us to have to make um, a massive turning point, uh, you know, a huge pivot. Uh, and we in webinar one, we talked about how we survived lockdown. So there's a Podcast you, one, you mean? Podcast one. Yeah. There you go. I've already got my formats mixed up. Yeah. Podcast one, mm-hmm. um, uh, which is who we are and how we survive yeah. lockdown. So we, we won't. We don't need to talk about that again. But what's interesting now for us uh, in the UK, because as lockdown has begun to ease, mm. then we've had to do another flight correction. Because I don't know about others of you out there who are maybe doing offering trainings online, as we've been doing, um, especially for over the last six months. Uh, is that suddenly people are less available mm-hmm. and uh, th- they're starting to go back to work. People are also unsure of how much they, they're going to be able to pay for yeah. uh, because of the. I think there's going to be a global recession as, as a result of all of this as well. I think people are Zoomed out as well. Yeah, and people get Zoomed out. And so one of the things we found that uh, was better for us to do, we are doing... Um, a week three, aren't we, of our online we are. singing week teacher three, training? We are. In fact, by starts, special request, starts this week. Yeah, invitation starts on only. Yeah, we're psyching ourselves up nicely for that, uh, which is going to be brilliant. Uh, one of the things we found is that um, we're doing these pop up zooms. Yes, which is a, a two hour Zoom training pop-up session. Pop up workshops. Pop up workshops. Yes, that's the one. Yeah. And we did our first one last Friday, we didn't we? We did our first one. Which On our favourite topic. Registers. Mechanisms. M1 and M2. And uh, these um, pop-up workshops are very practice-based, aren't they? The interesting thing about I mean, the first sentence that we said when we started the M1, M2 workshop was, hey, look, no PowerPoint. Mm. Uh, it was entirely practical. Um, it was two hours uh, online. And um, 
the pop-ups that we've got organised, we've got um, M1, M2, which is registers, and which is a completely practical version mm-hmm. of what are registers, how do you find them, what are they, what are they in men's voices, what are they in women's voices, how do you teach them, what do they feel like in your own yeah. voice, what are the variations of them. You have tasks them? to do. Yes. Uh, also, we've got our trained teachers who act as moderators so that people can work in small groups. They, yeah, yeah, you, you can actually to get to try, try everything out. What is interesting about the pop-ups that we've got planned, we've got one, uh, the M1, M2 workshop, we've got um, one planned on belting and power sounds. Um, we've got various ones planned, and some of them are going to be in-house. So they're only for the people who have already done at least one three-day training with us. So they can work more in-depth on things they've already learned. To be honest, that's really practical for us, because mm. we know that if people have worked with us on at least one three-day training, that we don't have to explain where we're coming from mm. and what or what you know you don't have to spend an hour it would be an hour it would be an hour mm. um explaining why this is m1 and why this is m2 they already know that mm-hmm. so we can get straight on with the practical and why it matters having said that we are going to we are planning to do an m1 m2 workshop that is open to everybody and we're going to make it slightly longer so that we can put that stuff mm-hmm. in mm. uh, so some of them are, are in-house and some of them are public yeah and also we haven't we haven't set dates for these, but we want to do some masterclasses because one of the things we have been doing in the online singing teacher training is um, masterclasses. Yes, live masterclasses and with the, the with teachers, the teachers love them students. And the students love them. So we, we bring them online yeah. and we work with them. And so far, so good. It's worked really well. Yes. And we want to do more of that. In fact, we're doing another online masterclass. Yeah, we've got four, four singers Friday. coming Friday and Saturday. Friday and Saturday, yeah. And that's part of week three. Yes. Good. Anything else you want to say about turning points? Because I think um, I, th- I think we're probably that done. Was everything that yeah. I wanted to say. I think one of the the fascinating things about turning points is listening. Um, mm. So sometimes you have to listen to what's going on ra- around in the world mm. around you, mm. um, uh, aka lockdown Mm. um sometimes you have to listen to the voice inside you going i'm not comfortable with this you Mm. know there must be something different i can do and by the way i have come to the conclusion over the years that there is always something different that you can do it's just a question of Mm. deciding and finding it and if if it's a health event yeah like you know your um my voice problem um the heart event that i had in december yes you have to look at that and go okay um what can I change about my life that will make it easier for me to manage with this, to um, keep myself enjoying doing the things that I do without overloading? I think there's a there's a viewpoint, there's a mentality that says mm. um, some something dramatic like that happens and you look at it and you go, right, this is now part of my life today. No, oh, you're much better than I am at doing that. I'm, I'm good at doing <laughs> that. Um, because it's happened so often. Mm. Um, but the, the, And the mentality is, this is now part of my life today. What about my life has to change to, to accommodate and incorporate that? Mm. It may not be part of my life in a week's time, but today it's mm. here and today I'm dealing with it. You're very good. You do that instantly. I will kick and scream all the way until I get to a point where I go, <laughs> yes. oh, okay then. It's true, <laughs> yeah. And on that note... <laughs> Shall we? Um, um, is there anything else? No, just uh, today's uh, episode is sponsored by Canny Publishing. Mm. 
Thank you, Canny Publishing. Um, and by the way, we should say, just this morning, I did tweet about this. This is the 21st of September. Mm. Normally it takes me two or three days to edit this and, and put it out live. Yeah. But um, today we passed 2,500 downloads for the podcast. So oh, hurrah. Thank you very much Excellent. for everybody who has downloaded us. And if you haven't, why not? Mm. Um, and also this week we appeared on... Amazon Music Podcasts for the first time. Mm. So we're on Google Google Podcasts, um, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, and various other things, but we are there on Amazon Music for the first time. And I know that people are still dis- discovering us because occasionally on Facebook, uh, someone would simply write, Capo. Yes. <laughs> and if you don't know what that means, listen go, to episode three. Yeah, go back and listen to the episode. Yeah. So okay. we are done. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you for being with us. Yeah. This is a voice, a podcast with Dr. Gillian Kays and Jeremy Fisher. <laughs> <laughs>